Just after Victor and I interviewed Nicholas Kristoff, it was reported that he is considering a run for governor of Oregon. While we didn't know about that during our interview, we did talk to him about growing up there and about his four audiences there, and we think you'll learn a lot by listening to this terrific episode of iGen Politics, the next potential governor of the state of Oregon. Back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a rising sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of your co-hosts on this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the former Watergate special prosecutor, uh, assistant Watergate special prosecutor, and the author of The Watergate Girl. I'm also the one who wears Jill's pin. And today's pin is in honor of Gestoff, and it is a globe because he has done so much for global education, uh, for all sorts of things, and is a world traveler, so it seemed like an appropriate wear in his honor. Our world faces unprecedented global challenges, human rights abuses and atrocities against the Uyghurs in East Asia, denial of basic freedoms and violence against those supporting democracy in Myanmar, drought and starvation in Darfur, camps on the borders of war-torn countries, but wherever the crisis, you can learn about the issues and the human toll from today's guest, Nicholas Kristof. And I'd add to that list of dangers that we're facing, the danger to democracy in America today. Nick Kristof has been a columnist for the New York Times since 2001, offering the, his readers a compassionate firsthand view into global poverty, gender inequity, and lack of health care access. In his role as a columnist, he has been described as the moral conscience of international journalism. Nick started his career at the New York Times as an economic reporter, then a foreign correspondent, and he has covered the um, 2000 George W. Bush campaign. He and his wife, Cheryl Wudan, won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of Tiananmen Square and then won a second, he then went on to win a second Pulitzer for his commentary on genocide in Darfur. Nick has uh, received so many humanitarian and other awards, including the Anne Frank Award, the Dayton Library Peace Award, and the Overseas Press Award. And he has co-authored books uh, with his wife. He wrote Thunder from the East, uh, A Path Appears, Half the Sky, and Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Uh, we'll be talking about all of those books with Nick today. But there's more that you need to know about Nick before we talk to him and to fully appreciate him. He's lived on four continents, reported from six, and traveled to well over 150 countries, and has long had a competitive essay contest to encourage young people to care and to understand the issues facing the world, especially in less developed countries. One year after I retired, he expanded the competition, which was limited to high school teachers and uh, students, uh, college students, to include an older adult. And um, I decided that I was going to apply for that. I didn't have a social media account at the time, but I nonetheless competed and not selected 
So today is a special thrill for me to be talking to Nick, and uh, uh, I did get to meet him once in person in the MSNBC Green Room, and also got to change his mind on one issue when I heard him on saying something I disagreed with. I tweeted, he responded, and said, based on the Twitter reaction, you're right and I'm wrong, and I'm changing my view. So I'm really thrilled to be having this conversation today. Thank you so much for being here, Nick. You educate and inspire me every day. I look forward to our conversation. I'm thrilled to be with you. Awesome. So um, I, I was so surprised when reading your biography to learn that you were born in Chicago and then grew up uh, on a farm in Oregon, showed cheap as your uh, Future Farmers of America project before attending Harvard for your undergrad degree, Oxford for your law degree as a Rhodes Scholar, and then traveling and studying Arabic in Cairo and Chinese in um, Taipei. With those credentials, you could well have done anything you wanted. I'm wondering what made you interested in pursuing a career in journalism and um, writing? Um, yeah, it's not the most typical path toward journalism, is it? Um, you know, it really began in the eighth grade in my hometown of Yamhill, Oregon, when there was a organizational meeting to start a school paper in the grade school. And I didn't have any particular interest in journalism, but a bunch of students did show up. They liked the idea of there being a school paper. None of them wanted the burden of editing it. And so they chose me as editor in absentia. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And then I spent, I mean, it was, you know, kind of central to my high school experience, to my college experience. Um, and, you know, I couldn't believe that people were actually willing to pay me to talk to interesting people. And um, I was in, in, I studied law. I was in some danger of becoming a, a lawyer, but uh, journalism, the, the pull of journalism was really too great. I mean, so you joined the New York Times in, I believe, 1984, initially covering economics. After that, you served as a business correspondent based in L.A. How did you happen to start covering economics and business uh, first? Um, it was really, I mean, the, the blunt truth is that the business editor of the New York Times then was willing to hire a young, unproven journalist. And um, I, you know, was looking for a good journalism job. And um, he, uh, we just really hit it off. And so uh, he was willing to hire me to cover international economics, although I didn't really know all that much about international economics. And I remember, you know, my first week, I was covering something and I said, asked a colleague, you know, so what's the difference between an investment bank and a commercial bank? And, you know, <laughs> everybody rolled their eyes. Um, uh, but uh, um, it, uh, you know, I, I had on the job training, so to speak. Definitely. And, and then following that, you transitioned to uh, being a bureau chief in three countries, spending much of your time in Beijing, where uh, my parents are originally from, and then other parts of Asia, including Tokyo and Hong Kong. Um, you were still relatively young then in your late 30s, or, sorry, early, tw early 30s, late 20s. Was it daunting to be in countries so far away from home and so different from where you grew up in? You know, that was really a reflection of the fact that at that time, Asia didn't matter so much to America. And the important job for The New York Times was then London bureau chief and, you know, maybe Paris bureau chief. But uh, they were willing to send somebody, you know, fairly untried and young 
to be the Hong Kong bureau chief and to be the Beijing bureau chief. And until I arrived, there had only, only been one person covering all of China. And then uh, my uh, wife and colleague, Cheryl Wudun, was uh, uh, made a, a fellow correspondent. And so, you know, then the two of us covered more than a billion people at that point. And, uh, and, and that was seen as something of a uh, you know, a, a generous investment in covering the world's most populous country, when in fact, of course, you know, today it seems absurd that one couple should be covering all of China. Yeah, we want to ask more about your, your time in Asia, but one, one last thing, how did you then transition to become um, a columnist for the New York Times? So, um, I, uh, I had always dreamed of being a columnist. I, you know, grew up with, uh, you know, reading people like Anthony Lewis. Um, and so I had, um, I was in danger of becoming an editor. In fact, I had become an editor. I was the, uh, editor of the Sunday New York times. And, uh, but I had written the publisher at, uh, express interest in being a columnist, but, Really, at that point, the only thing I was qualified to cover was international affairs. And we had an international affairs columnist, Tom Friedman. And so it wasn't quite clear how this might happen. And then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, there was a great interest in the world and international affairs. I had uh, I, studied Arabic. Um, and so the Times... Uh, decided that they could use a second person covering the world and covering, you know, in particular, some of the Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, later Iraq and, uh, and so on. And so I, um, in some sense was a beneficiary of that, you know, of, of that terrible period. So my heart skipped a beat when you mentioned Anthony Lewis, because he is one of the reasons I went to law school. And is that uh, right? Reading, absolutely. Reading his book, Gideon's Trumpet, college course was part of my inspiration because I remember reading that he had gone to Harvard Law School without realizing that he went on a Neiman Fellowship after winning a Pulitzer. But I thought, well, if that helped him get a good job in journal, my undergraduate degree was journalism. It'll. So, so I was foolish, but I'm so glad you mentioned and, him. Well, and yeah, and, and that book that you mentioned, Gideon's Trumpet, his, uh, you know, it, it, it was written in the 1960s, but it's still just an extraordinary look at how the Supreme Court can really change elemental principles of justice in ways that make this a fairer and better country. Absolutely. Um, it, it's as are many of the books that we're going to talk about with you today that you and Cheryl have written. But um, let, let's go back first to Asia. And when you were covering Asia for the New York Times, you covered Tiananmen Square uh, in April of 1989, along with uh, your wife. And the audience is intergenerational, and many of them weren't alive during that time. And because it's so important and was part of your first, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe describe a little bit about those crucial events in China, which really did have, I think, a major effect on China's attitude toward China. Absolutely. Um, so uh, China throughout the 1980s had become um, somewhat more open in a somewhat unsteady process. Uh, the economy had boomed. Uh, there 
were some officials who wanted to have a more open and and in some respects democratic country, and there were other, uh, in particular, eight very senior leaders who didn't who you know hated that idea. Uh, then one of the reformist leaders, Hu Yaobang, uh, died on April fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine, and students used the um, occasion of mourning his death to argue for greater democracy and freedom in China. Those demonstrations just grew in a way that nobody had anticipated, and soon you had more than a million people uh, protesting in Beijing. You had students going on a hunger strike, and uh, soon there were protests in every in in, in, the, in the county seats of all two thousand counties across. Uh, uh, actually. I can't remember now how many counties there are in, in China, but in every county seat in China. And um, uh, and reformist leaders, including Zhao Ziyang, were trying to use this as an occasion to push the more elderly types, the hardliners, out of power. And the hardliners struck back. And on the night of June 3rd, 1989, what we usually think of as June 4th, they sent in troops and they mowed down students with automatic weapons fire. Um, I was there that night and and watched it. And I will never forget watching a modern army turn its weapons on its own people as blood ran in the street. Um, and I, I actually, I just, uh, just two days ago, just found that notebook that I was carrying that night and it's still swaying, uh, stained with a sweat of fear. Um, and that crackdown really changed China. It, you know, there were in 1989, of course, Eastern Europe and even Mongolia went in a more democratic direction, and China went in a more hardline uh, direction that it is now doubling down on. Um, it lost a generation of of people who fled to the to the West, um, and um, it has. Uh, and there's still this this fundamental contradiction between a country that has done so well economically, so well in terms of um, education and creating a, a modern middle class, in terms of creating a life expectancy where an, a baby, newborn baby in Beijing lives a longer life than a newborn baby in Washington, D.C. And yet, you know, lawyers, journalists, uh, anybody who expresses a I thought contrary to that of the Communist Party uh, is at risk of prison. I think that really sets the stage. I, I know from reading your columns and, and the general reporting during that time, but also seeing the photographs. There's one in particular that our audience probably, even even the young ones have seen, which was someone who became known as Anne in defiance of the tanks that were rolling across the Tiananmen Square and using the weapons. Um, I wonder if you see any parallels to some of the use of the military in our current struggles in America, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Lafayette Square. I mean, nothing as horrible as tanks mowing down, uh, rapid-fire gunshot. Do you see any similarities to today? I mean, the what was I think the parallel was that you had a political leadership that was ready to use 
a armed force meant to fight off foreign militaries against its own people. Um, it's largely to the credit of the American military that the professionalism of uh, the generals, um, um, you know, withstood that challenge and they quite strongly resisted the idea of being engaged. And there were, you know, they, there, there, there was that, that famous scene where uh, they did uh, escort the president and clear protesters, but uh, that was the exception. And um, I think we are lucky that our uh, military establishment is so, you know, so, professionalized that it does not want to engage in domestic politics. And I wish that it, there, there was a similar effort in China. There, the head of the 38th Army refused to, uh, to, to, to shoot his own people and uh, declared himself sick. Uh, but, you know, that ultimately the Chinese army pursued a different path. The, the Burmese army right now, we're seeing, you know, again, uh, turn itself on its own people. Um, Ethiopian army right now is doing something similar in Tigray. Uh, you know, that sadly that is happening in a number of places around the world. It, it is indeed. And you're reporting on that event in Tiananmen. Um, when you were just 31, you won a Pulitzer Prize uh, with your wife and were the first married couple. Maybe I, I haven't been able to find any other married couples that won a Pulitzer for their joint work. But so you may be the only next there was one later, uh, Kevin Sullivan and Mary Jordan from the Washington Post did win a, a uh, Pulitzer and they're, <laughs> they're good friends of ours. And so we, uh, we have our little couples club. But how did you feel at the time, you know, 31 winning a Pulitzer uh, and for something that really was world changing? You know, Jill, I mean, it was... The really hard thing was that we were being uh, celebrated and reaping so much benefit. And we had, you know, I mean, I had seen these kids killed. Um, and I had friends who were in hiding. I had friends who were in prison, uh, friends whose lives had been completely destroyed. And one of the things that we don't often talk about in journalism, but especially in covering international events, is that we rely greatly on um, fixers, helpers, uh, people who know the country well. And um, they take all the risks. They get none of the credit. And when things go wrong, you know, they're the ones who end up in prison. And uh, having that blue passport isn't perfect protection. But it certainly helps. And um, I, um, you know, I thought a lot about people who there, there was one, you know, there, for example, there was one young man at Tsinghua University who had helped us uh, get, he helped us enter Tsinghua University to, to report on the democracy movement there. Then he was under investigation afterward for having helped us. He, um, he, he reported on the investigation, how the process went. Uh, to us secretly, of course. Uh, he ended up being in prison. Um, he escaped from prison and he came to Beijing to ask us for help to flee China. And, you know, <laughs> Cheryl and I just agonized over what to do because here was a, he was a 19 year old kid who 
had gotten in trouble because he tried to help us and our readers. Uh, and how could and if we didn't help him at some point, the authorities were going to catch up with him. And yet, you know, the pretty basic rule of journalism is you don't help escaped felons flee the country. Uh, we couldn't consult with our editors because, of course, they would say, no, you, you can't help an escaped prisoner. And uh, and yet we decided we felt we couldn't not help him. And in the end, we uh, very gingerly, very carefully with as few fingerprints as possible, we did help him. And he was able to get to Hong Kong uh, on Christmas Day when the border was less less well guarded. Uh, he called me up. I flew to Hong Kong the next day, and uh, we then helped him get to the U.S. And, uh, you know, there are few things I have done that are so unprofessional as a journalist, but I'm deeply proud of having done that. As well you should be. Um, I, I want to also talk about your um, your love of travel. Um, and uh, like you, I am absolutely an avid traveler, uh, both for business and for pleasure. And I found, and, and I'm wondering if this is true for you, that every country I've done business in, even though it may have had the same goal, is done very differently because of the culture and the language. And that learning the culture of the country is essential to being able to do business there. And I'm assuming also to write about the country and to cover it accurately. Um, is that your experience? I think that is generally true. Uh, uh, I mean, I would, you know, I would argue that a Chinese speaker uh, like myself is much, you know, better place to cover China um, than somebody who hasn't, you know, isn't uh, enmeshed in the history, the culture, the language. Um, but I must say that there also have been some foreign correspondents who have done remarkably sophisticated work without the language experience. Some ambassadors have been very good without language, although on balance, it they certainly do better when they have had that exposure to language, uh, culture, history. Um, I also think, Jill, that there is something of a, a bias in the way we cover countries, and it's related to the language and culture issue, and it's that in general, we tend to go to the capital, and we tend to speak to important men over 60 who were college educated and speak English. And, you know, that is such a tiny sliver of, of, of a population. And we, I think we don't get out in the countryside enough. I don't think we, uh, you know, we speak enough to uh, women, to young people, to just, you know, the, you know, Im imagine if, if a foreign correspondent tried to come to America and, uh, cover America by just going to Washington, D.C. and talking to some elderly politicians. I think that's often the way we tend to cover the rest of the world. You seem to have a real passion for the international and for travel. Did that begin when you were very young and what motivated it? My dad was a refugee um, from Eastern Europe and uh, was nearly executed in the former Yugoslavia, uh, if not for the help actually probably of a French diplomat who inquired about him and simply didn't even ask that he be spared, but simply the inquiry probably was enough to spare his life. And so, um, and my dad grew up in, 
sort of what is now southern Ukraine, but in a mm. Armenian family that was polonized. And it, if you asked my dad where he was from, he would uh, say Romania because it was Romania between the wars. And if you asked his uncle, uh, he'd say, "Oh, I'm from Poland," because they spoke Polish at home. And if you asked my aunt, she'd say, "Oh, Armenian." And you know, when my uncle called up, my dad would speak to him in Polish. My aunt called up, he would speak to her in Romanian. It was a very mm. muddled family that just underscored how international and cosmopolitan, you know, the world is. And uh, I think did make a farm boy from rural Oregon engaged in the world. Although Victor and I would like to think of you as a Chicagoan because we're from Chicago. So we're going to make you a native of Chicago. <laughs> my, my dad. You were yeah. born there, so my dad was, it counts. Uh, my, and, that's exactly right. He was um, studying at the University of Chicago at the time. And uh, so I, I arrived at Lying in Hospital ah. uh, in the South Side. And now you visited over 150 countries, according to everything I've read. And I'm just wondering, is there any that you would either like to revisit or any countries that you haven't been to that you long to go to? Oh, uh, I mean, there's so many I'd love to go back to. Um, some of the, I mean, I'm really fascinated by some of these great, grand, not just countries, but civilizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, India, China, uh, in in particular. Um, um, in terms of countries that I'd love to get to, uh, Papua New Guinea oh. is very high on my list, and I've repeatedly tried and never managed to quite get there. Uh, there I've been to all of the uh, countries in mainland Africa, but there are a few islands that I have yet to visit, and I'd love to have gone to every African country, which means I have to hit. You know, if you see if you see an article from the the Seychelles, yes. you'll understand my motivation. Right. <laughs> right. So I have to tell you that I have been to Papua New Guinea on a fantastical trip, and actually also went wow. to I'm went to Borneo, where I got married by a headhunting tribe, the Katazans. So I'm glad to know there's a country <laughs> I've been to that you haven't. I um in the other room actually I have a blowpipe uh, from Borneo uh, that um, but I then the kids you know I got that before we had kids and then the kids arrived and they discovered the blowpipe oh. and um, my wife quickly banished it and hit it uh, so that they wouldn't you know spear each other but um, uh, <laughs> yeah but uh, Borneo was fantastic but I'd love to go to yeah. Papua New Guinea Victor. I mean, you both put me to you both put me to shame when it comes to traveling. My my parents now that I'm well next year now that I'm in college. My dad told me that his passion now is to travel more now that I'm not away from oh. home and because I'm the only child. So that 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 is their passion now. Um, I have one just quick follow up to the traveling part. You know, you started traveling as a youth, and you describe you know you develop this international perspective from like a young age. How important was that, uh, I guess, who you are now, and how important do you think it is for um, young students to travel as much as they can? I think that it's good for individuals because it builds perspective. I think it's also good for a country because I think that it builds a certain amount of uh, empathy and leads to wiser policies. Uh, I think it becomes harder to otherize people when you have interacted with them, when you have depended on them, when they have helped you. Um, and I also think that we often, we Americans often fumble foreign policy because we 
see ourselves as these gallant uh, people riding up on a white horse and helping others. And we don't understand the prism of suspicion uh, and often antagonism through which other countries see us. And, you know, the idea that we had in the run up to the Iraq war that Iraqis were going to welcome us with flowers, uh, you know, certainly nobody who had been to Iraq would have thought that, but also nobody who had spent time in Latin America would have thought that nobody had spent time almost anywhere in the world among foreigners would think that the U S could go march into an oil rich country and be welcomed with, uh, you know, with applause and flowers. So I think that we would have a more sound, uh, policy. Uh, I think we would perhaps be a society a little more tinged with empathy and making decisions about whether to provide vaccines to the rest of the world, for example. And so I, um, I've encouraged my kids to each take a gap year before college. I, um, I, you know, encourage other kids to, you know, travel around and get a job abroad somewhere. Uh, I think it's just a, a great experience, part of an education. I mean, you're, yeah, nearly every person I've talked to has said, you know, travel abroad when you're a college. And at first I kind of shrugged it up, but now I think I realize just the importance and the value that comes with going to another country and learning their perspective and culture and language. Um, uh, speaking of language, you can speak several languages, I think including Arabic, Chinese, and Japanese. Those were the ones that I was able to find online. Are there more that isn't online that are online and that you uh, can speak? Um, uh, you said, uh, Arabic Chinese. I, well, I speak, <laughs> I speak them all badly. I should say, uh, I, uh, I speak French badly. Um, I, at one point I spoke Spanish, but at this point I, 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 I don't really. Um, and, uh, so I, um, uh, uh, I, I struggle through my, uh, my Chinese, we had, a uh, Chinese, uh, uh, babysitter raising the kids who didn't speak English to make sure that the kids spoke <laughs> spoke Chinese when they were growing up, and so that forced us to uh, to keep up the the Chinese. But uh, you know now the kids are older, and so we no longer have that daily practice. Uh, Victor, did your did your parents inflict uh, Chinese school on you when you were a kid? You know, it, it, it's so wild. This is something that not many people know, but my parents keep telling me that. So when I grew up, my parents would speak to me in Chinese and other people would speak to me in English. And so when I grew up, I used to speak in both Chinese and English. Like I would like mix the two as I grew up. And so it was like weird how like the brain works with like processing language. But yeah, they, they did inflict a lot of uh, Chinese school, Chinese, Chinese language on me. Um, so I, I have I still maintain my uh, Chinese speaking um, language. Um, you know, I was talking to one of my close friends who also knows how to speak many languages, and I asked her why she chooses to learn them, and she told me because, I mean, she sees it as like a gesture of respect to other cultures, and uh, do you feel like the same way about learning languages, uh, and I guess like how helpful is it to like understanding um, another culture, another country that you do visit? I, I think that it is very helpful to... Um, if you want to get off the beaten path and get beyond those, you know, sort of educated English speakers in the capital and to have casual relationships with people, I think is really important to, to building those ties. And, you know, in fact, when I, when I test somebody's ability with a foreign language, I have a, a you know, a three part 
tests that somebody who has studied in a classroom uh, may not, they may be able to read very elegantly in a foreign language. But um, the uh, one, one of my questions is, how do you say doorknob in another language and uh, an electrical outlet and a clothes hanger? And, you know, you can know a language quite well and maybe not know those words. But if you lived in a country, then you probably do know how to say, um, you know, manba for doorknob in Chinese, for example, because it's something that comes up or, you know, you're asking somebody about the 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 the, the, zuo, the electrical outlet. Uh, and so it's a um, so I do think that languages are important as a show of respect, but also often the only way you really can interact with people who you know, are a little less educated and um, and a little more typical of people living in a country. Totally agree with that. Uh, and it's also essential just if you're a traveler. If you just want to see a country, you have to know, I mean, there are obviously certain things like, where is the bathroom? That's probably the most important thing you'll ever need to ask. But um, let's go back to your career because in 2000, you had covered the George W. campaign, and then you became the associate managing editor of the New York Times, uh, which, based on what you've told us about your experience in journalism, which was as an editor, sort of makes sense. Um, but then a year later, um, after 9-11, as you said, you became a columnist. And so I just, for our listeners who are thinking of careers in journalism, I'm wondering if you can tell a little bit about what it was like for you to go from the newsroom to managing and then to the side. Um, so, you know, I've loved every bit of journalism that I've done. Don't tell my bosses this because, you know, they, they'd realize they wouldn't really have to pay me. I'd probably be willing to pay them. Um, <laughs> but I... I love I love the reporting. Um, then I I resisted various editing jobs, which kept forcing them to offer me better and better editing jobs. And so eventually, uh, I was offered the job of editing the Sunday paper as assistant manager, as assistant managing editor, uh, associate managing editor of the uh, of the Times, and that was a fantastic job. You know, here's the premier premier yeah. news product maybe in the world, and that was. Uh, that was my 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 sandbox to experiment with, um, and then the column has been just a, an extraordinary thing. Um, I would say that managing journalists, probably like managing academics, uh, is I think more of a challenge than managing people in the corporate world because I think by self selection. Uh, <laughs> You know, somewhat difficult people often go into journalism as they often become professors. And um, so, um, but I, you know, I, I had obviously very, very deep ties in the newsroom. And, uh, uh, but it, it, it did amuse me when we went from, you know, one moment to hanging out together and complaining how awful editors were to the next me being an editor and trying to <laughs> control people into doing my, into doing my will. 
Um, so, so we've talked with many journalists on this show and um, always ask about the rampant um, misinformation, disinformation that are um, now being perpetuated by newsmakers and quote-unquote opinion slash entertainment journalists. Um, what do you think it will take for us to return to a time when facts and truth actually matter? And I guess, is that possible given how polarized our nation is? I don't know if it's possible, but boy, I think we need to try harder. And uh, it embarrasses me as a journalist to see what often passes as journalism. You know, I I was of the generation that went into journalism to sort of after Watergate when it was seen as heroic, as holding officials to account. And then to see, you know, Fox News in particular uh, preaching against vaccines just breaks my heart. Uh, and to the you know, I, I think business models matter a great deal. And I think the way to get better journalism in part is to um, make bad journalism not pay. And I think that probably means pressure on advertisers and perhaps pressure on cable companies uh, to not fund journalism, quote unquote journalism, that is uh, reckless and destructive of the public good. Journalism should be a public good. And where it's a public harm, there should be consequences that undermine that business model. And I think that's also a great message to send to aspiring journalists that the quality, journal, the quality of journalism is important uh, for this work. Uh, I just want to focus a little bit more on your columns, which are related to human rights, education rights, healthcare, poverty, gender inequality. I'm an avid reader. And I'm wondering how you develop that focus on those issues um, and, and whether that maybe is um, in part because of your, your travel abroad. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that it, it wasn't something that grew on me intellectually. It was a matter of, you know, in, well, in China, having friends who were in prison and tortured and seeing their courage. I had a friend, Ren Wanting, who uh, wrote a long treatise about human rights uh, on toilet paper with a nib of a discarded pen because that was the only tools he had. And, uh, you know, I'm I was honored to know him. Uh, uh, people like Lujain al-Hathloul in Saudi Arabia, uh, imprisoned for um, promoting women's rights and our allied government there, uh, you know, imprisoned, sexually assaulted her. Uh, seeing people in, in so many countries, you know, uh, display that, that, that raw courage to help their fellow citizens gain greater freedoms. And I think, you know, also you see poverty and you see kids um, going uh, blind needlessly from um, blinding trachoma, for example, which can be uh, prevented with, uh, you know, a few cents worth of zithromycin. Uh, you see uh, villages wiped out with, you know, river blindness. Uh, you see kids, you know, going to continue the blindness, going blind for lack of, of vitamin A, uh, which is, uh, you know, very easy to address. And just seeing so much suffering that is the result of kind of indifference uh, among those of us who, uh, in parts of the world, we can do better. And, you know, we can't, we're not going to save every 
life around the world. We're not going to give every child an education, but can we do an awful lot better? Yeah, we absolutely can. Uh, and so that when you, you know, when you see the, con when you see kids and you have a human face on that kind of suffering, then it becomes pretty important. Human trafficking is an issue I write about a lot and that all stemmed really from one trip to Cambodia back in, um, I think 1997, and I saw young girls who had been kidnapped and they were being auctioned off for their virginity. And I just could not believe this was happening. I just, you know, I just could not believe this was happening. And um, it, it haunts you. And uh, so I tilted my windmills, uh, Victor, I tilted my windmills. Yeah, no, it's so gut-wrenching and it's so heartbreaking, but you're columns that shed light on these stories are so important. And I'm wondering what you think, I mean, living in America, what do you think our response should be to human rights violations around the world? I mean, you mentioned that we aren't doing enough, but is there, under this new administration, what do you think we should be doing um, to protect human rights um, around the world? So, um, you know, there, there are genuine conflicts sometimes between our interests and our values. And, uh, you know, we have, um, you know, real commercial interests with Saudi Arabia, for example. But I don't think that those should curtail us from speaking very bluntly to Saudi Arabia and the de facto Saudi leader right now, MBS, uh, you know, uh, he became the de facto leader basically because the Trump administration uh, uh, allied itself with him. If he becomes king after his father dies, we will, the world will be stuck with him for the next 50 years. And so I think that, you know, we should be uh, doing more to delegitimize him and to reduce the prospect that he becomes king. And that's a case where I think that's not only our values, speaking, but our interests as well. Um, in general, you know, I, look, in most cases, you know, we're not going to go invading foreign countries. Uh, there may be some cases where perhaps uh, it is necessary to prevent a genocide. I think Rwanda in 1994 is a case where that uh, that should have been done. Bill Clinton said it was biggest foreign policy mistake was not uh, invading Rwanda to stop the genocide. Um, you could argue maybe in Darfur that we should have uh, engage militarily to some degree uh, to support the rebels. But, you know, in general, it's not going to be something we do militarily. It's going to be something we do with the power of the pulpit and by uh, shining a light on problems using their intelligence community, not just to spy on the Russians and the Chinese, but also to gather intelligence and evidence that raises the costs of barbaric behavior and makes it public. And so um, uh, I think we can do more. The, the Biden administration and, you know, Tony Blinken, uh, Jake Sullivan, I think they care a lot about these issues. Uh, I think that Saudi Arabia is really the area where they have pursued a friendlier relationship uh, with the kingdom than, um, you know, than Biden had suggested we would during the campaign and, um, you know, friendlier than I think uh, makes sense right now. There are so many great columns that you've written, and um, I'm going to try to get to some of them, but I'm going to skip around because I don't want to run out of time before we get to all of them. But I mean, there's, of course, Darfur, 
where you had, I think, a major impact in, in changing perceptions and helping, and um, but also with the Uyghurs in China and um, the you've written a lot about Israel and Palestine. But I want to follow up first on one of your columns uh, that was called uh, How Can You Hate Me When You Don't Even Know Me? Because to me, that relates in a way to a question Victor asked you, which is how can we get back to facts and truth and how can we persuade people who have very different views than, than we do? And so you might be helpful in saying, you know, how do you have that conversation with Trump supporters who quote no facts in support of their mistaken views? Um, you want to talk about either that particular column or just your views in general? Sure. Um, you know, this comes up a lot because, you know, as you know, you know, Jill and Victor, I'm from, a, you know, this this farm town in Yamhill, uh, Yamhill, Oregon, where most people do support Trump. And I have these very good friends who I care a lot about who are still Trump supporters, who think that uh, the election was stolen, who I just have a you know, who, who doubt COVID, who are suspicious of the vaccine. And I want to change their minds uh, because, you know, not both because it's the right thing to do, but also because I worry about them if they don't get vaccinated. And there's a fair amount of social science literature, mostly from social psychology, about how we change people's minds. And I think the big warning that comes out of that is not to make people defensive. And that when you go into um, somebody who disagrees with you and you wag your finger and you, you know, lay out your 18 point rebuttal, <laughs> then that tends not to be persuasive and tends not to change minds. Uh, what tends to work best, uh, somewhat surprisingly, is to um, listen and sometimes to ask, you know, sort of leading questions that make people uh, make people um, realize that there are people that they like and trust who see the world very differently. And maybe you can, you're, you're not going to change their minds overnight or in a month or maybe not in a year, but you can plant small seeds of doubt that over time, perhaps you can reel them back a little bit. And so um, that's what I, that's what I try to do with my friends. Of course, they try to do the same with me. Um, uh, I, I also think it's important for the Democratic Party. Uh, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if we want to do all the things that I care about, we have to not only win the presidency, but we also have to win the Senate in, you know, states like Ohio and, um, you know, like Georgia and, and so on. And, uh, I think that that means um, doing a better job of showing respect for working class voters uh, who have both both white and Hispanic working class voters have, um, I think, too often voted uh, Republican when their economic interests are so allied with, uh, you know, with the Democratic Party and with Biden. And I think that um, listening and showing respect is one step toward getting those some of those votes. 
And you show that so well in this particular column. We'll put a link to that column because like in many of your columns, it's describing a problem, but it's describing a solution. There is an approach, a way to deal with it. And the same is true. I, I'm, I'm holding up for our YouTube viewers. Uh, let's see if I can get in the camera. Um, one of your books, which because as a woman, I'm particularly fond of, which is called Half the Sky that you and Cheryl Wudan wrote together. And I mean, it's an amazing story of the hurdles and obstacles and uh, discrimination and terrors of women around the world. But it also talks about what people can actually do. And it's very hard to summarize. Um, um, uh, I mean, there are so many great, you know, blurbs about it and reviews of it. But I, I, if you could just say something about the book and what you think we can accomplish in solving the problems that are identified in half the sky. Yeah, you know, our argument in half the sky was essentially that in the 19th century, the world's greatest moral challenge was slavery. And uh, in the 20th century, it was totalitarianism. And in the 21st century, it's uh, gender inequity around the globe. And this is a, a foremost moral challenge. And B, it's a practical challenge because the best way, best tools we have to address all kinds of issues we care about, from terrorism to poverty to climate change, involve um, essentially educating girls and then helping those educated women enter the labor force and gain opportunity. And that there's no silver bullet that makes this perfect, but it does, you know, these um, the silver buckshot in a sense that really does uh, empower those women and empower the whole world. It will help the global economy by empowering those women. And um, um, it, it, it focuses around the world. Your most recent book, which Victor wants to talk to you about, of course, focuses more on America. And so, Victor, why don't you ask about that one? Yeah, I mean, so, so your latest book, also written with your um, wife, you, you, like Jill said, you diverge from that international focus of your previous books to look at America, but in a way it's like your objective look at the other countries because you're focused on like the other America, a part of America that's different from middle-class America as Darfur Tenement is. Um, what do you mean by the other America, if you can describe that for our audience? Well, the origins of this were that I was traveling around the world covering humanitarian crises abroad. And then I'd come back to the family farm where my mom still is and talk to my old friends. And I realized there was a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. And, you know, at this point, a third of the kids on my old school bus are now dead from drugs, alcohol, and suicide, what are called deaths of despair. We were very proud of our strong social fabric, um, our rural values, they just disintegrated uh, so quickly and jobs went away, um, meth arrived and everything just, just disappeared. And, you know, I've, uh, the, and so I was trying to figure out how to tell that story. And I understood that it wasn't just, you know, one 
bus route or one town, this is a problem that has affected so much of America, working class America, black, white, and brown. Uh, and in, in, in fact, um, in the 1990s, in places like Yam Hill, which is white, uh, I think there was a tendency to point to African-American communities that were struggling and say, ah, you know, it's it's those people, that culture, and that, you know, they, if it wasn't for deadbeat dads and uh, bad choices, personal irresponsibility, everything would be fine. And then, meanwhile, the great Harvard sociologist, uh, William Julius Wilson, said, no, it's about job losses. And he was exactly right, because when jobs left Yamhill and when they left Kentucky and when they left northern Maine, the same patterns and pathologies unfolded. And... I think that it's, you know, America can't be competitive around the world and can't realize its potential when so many Americans are short, falling short of theirs. Um, we have, uh, uh, you know, we, we pioneered high schools in America. We were the first country to make high school widespread. And as late as the 1960s, we led the world in high school graduation. Now we're, uh, there are more than 20 countries that are ahead of us in high school attendance. Um, we've, we've stopped investing in human capital in ways that will undermine this country and that are causing these tragedies, you know, in, among my friends. I have, uh, I've, you know, I've just lost too many friends. I have too many friends who are homeless, um, too many who are on the brink of homelessness. and. Um, watching that play out in the pandemic. And uh, there were, I had friends who were in recovery and when they no longer had to submit urine tests as part of some kind of a court administered program. And so there's no longer accountability when they no longer had in-person uh, 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 meetings with, you know, support groups. Um, and so they no longer had that support. Uh, they, they return to meth and heroin and alcohol and their kids uh, were affected. And I've just been, um, you know, wrestling with that so much. It's, it's really kind of why since working on that book, I mostly moved out to, to Oregon because um, I see the human stakes of what I think is a big national failure. I mean, after reading your book, I almost felt a sense of anger and frustration given the state of politics in D.C. and the level of polarization America faces. Um, who, are, who are the people that you're trying or that you're hoping to reach in this book? And what do you think we as you know, lawmakers, just regular citizens can do to try can can do to solve the issues that you describe as the other America um, and what they face? So. You know, I think that there is a fundamental misperception that the problems in, you know, whether it's rural Oregon, rural Ohio, Kentucky, whatever, that they're because of globalization, because of automation, mechanization, and they're not. I mean, look, Germany has, Canada, all these countries go through similar economic processes, and they don't have 91,000 people dying a year of overdoses. They don't have these kind of human casualties. They don't have these deaths of despair. They didn't have life expectancy dropping the way we did in the U.S. This, these problems are a fundamental yeah, consequence of bad choices that America made. Lack of investment in kids in particular. You know, it's hard to help a struggling 30-year-old or 40-year-old. It's a lot easier to help a three-month-old or a three-year-old. And the U.S., 
lags behind other countries in providing, you know, universal high quality pre-K, for example, in uh, ending lead poisoning, which still affects, you know, half million kids a year. Uh, and so um, I guess what I would love to see is more investment by the country in uh, early childhood in particular. And, you know, President Biden has proposed a and just a historic expansion of, uh, well, he does it in the form of refundable tax credits, uh, child tax credits, which would amount to a child allowance, which would reduce child poverty by almost half. It's, I mean, it is the most important child program in American history. And, uh, but right now it's only one year. So, you know, that would be one starting point. And I guess the other is, I think we need to change our narrative and that for 50 years, we've been very focused in the U.S. on this personal responsibility narrative. And when people um, fail, it's because of bad choices. And there is no question that my friends and many other people make bad choices and that they at times show personal irresponsibility and they would acknowledge that. But we as a country have made bad choices you know, when only 20% of Americans with substance abuse problems get treatment, even though treatment pays for itself many times over, that's, that's our lack of a collective social responsibility. So sure, let's have that conversation about personal responsibility, but let's also have a conversation about our collective responsibility, especially to kids who you can't, you know, you can't say that some infant is making bad choices. And yet that infant, in some cases, has a life expectancy. You know, there are nine counties in the U.S. that have a shorter life expectancy for a newborn infant than in, than Bangladesh has. American infants aren't making bad choices. We are. That is such a compelling story. And as someone who has lost two family members to addiction, um, I, I, yeah. No, I'm so it's, sorry, Jill. You know, you say if my family can't solve this problem, how can other families, we had all the resources available and breaking addiction is really hard. The statistics are depressing, but I wanna end on a much lighter note than that. So let's go back to the adventure of your life and um, what you would say to Victor's generation uh, about living an adventuresome, adventurous, fulfilling life. Um, you know, there's, I, 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 my, my first trip to Congo, it, um, it started with a, a plane crash and then I got chased through the jungle for five days by a rebel army. And then in the course of that, I got the most lethal form of malaria. And so that was more adventure crammed into, uh, into two and a half weeks than, than I would ever want to have. And, you know, I was lucky to have survived that. I'm lucky to have survived other things. But at the end of the day, it's not adventure for adventure's sake. It really was, at every point, a careful weighing uh, of risks of what might be down that road, of what story I can get if I go down that road, how important is it to get there, how sure am I that I can get back if I go down that road and I get to the wrong checkpoint, then what will happen to my driver, my interpreter? Um, am I putting them at undue risk? And and I, uh, you know, I'm 
I'm proud of those stories like Darfur uh, that I was able to report on. I feel lucky that I uh, was able to get them and make those trips, you know, round <laughs> trips. Um, and I guess for anybody thinking about journalism or, you know, or certain kinds of advocacy, that there really still are chances to move the needle. And it's not that we're going to solve problems, whether they're foreign or domestic, but can we make a difference? You know, absolutely. Um, and I've seen that with uh, my work and that of colleagues. And I see that, you know, with my dad, as I mentioned earlier, it was because of a French diplomat asking a question that I'm here right now. Um, and it was because of the First Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon, that was willing to sponsor him as a refugee that I'm here. Um, so we may not be able to help everybody. We can help some in ways that are completely transformative. Well, I know that you inspire me every day. And I know this interview is going to inspire many, many more people. I hope that they will look at our show notes, which will list your books and uh, some of your columns. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us more so we can cover all those columns that we wanted to ask about, but didn't have time to do. Thank you so much for being with us today. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks so much to both of you. Take care, Victor and Jill. 